Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. As we continue our series through Luke's Gospel today, closing out Luke chapter 11, by God's grace, uh, having come nearly halfway through. So just a few more years, and we'll be done, folks. It's, you can see the light at the end. Uh, Luke chapter 11 today, beginning to read in verse 37, and we will take it all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 54. And what we're going to find today is another one of these passages where, as one commentator said, Jesus is on the offensive. He enters into a Pharisee's home for a dinner party, and he is not asked for his opinion. Uh, he is not asked a question. His, uh, his advice is not solicited, and yet he gives it. Uh, in some sense, breaking some of the most closely held social faux pas of the day. Uh, and he, uh, he speaks woe. It's really a word of lamentation, not so much a condemnation, but, uh, but a sadness, uh, an expression of sadness at what's going on. And he does it so that these legalists and we, his church, would learn a lesson about the danger of false religion. That's what we're going to see today. Uh, a lesson about empty religion, about hypocrisy. So we're going to read together Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37, and to the end of the chapter, verse 54. If you've not yet found that in our cart Bibles, that is on page 870. And before we read together, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we pray that by your spirit you would fill us with the knowledge of Christ our Savior the very spirit who inspired the words which we are about to read, we pray that you would open our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and faith to believe in all of your promises that are yes in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Here now, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, 
For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those, hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. A sense the reading of God's holy in an errant word. May he add a blessing as we read and study it together today. In 1651, the ministers of the Church of Scotland gathered together to uh, draw up what they called a humble acknowledgement of the sins of the ministry. It was a public pastoral confession. For about two decades, their land, their country, had been mired in civil war and bloodshed. And by their estimation, uh, the wars that were ravaging their land and killing their men and breaking up their families and destroying their churches, by their estimation, this was God's judgment upon them. It was God's judgment upon the people, and as shepherds of the people, it was God's judgment upon the ministers. And so they gathered together to pray and to confess, and they gathered together to publish the sins they were confessing so that others might know their failures. And if you read the document, you get the sense that maybe these men had their Bibles open to somewhere like Luke 11 as they listed their failures. They confessed the sin of being seldom in secret prayer with God except to prepare for public performance. Even that much neglected. They confessed that they were more ready to search out and to censure faults in others than to see or deal with them in themselves. They confessed that they often spoke of Christ more from hearsay than from knowledge of the heart. They confessed that they preached against public sins, not for drawing men out of them, but because it was to their advantage to say something about these evils. And you could read the document, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. But the thread that runs throughout the entire thing is the, the dangerous peril of hypocrisy in Christian ministry. It's a snare that traps many pastors. Paul Tripp wrote that, that pastors are often taken first by the sin of self-glory. And then, of course, when you fall into thinking that you're something, you want people to recognize the something that you think you are. And so you begin to minister for outward appearance, for the things that people see. You put all of your energy into what others can see about you and about your pastorate, and you don't pay attention to the things that are within. It's one of the dangers that pastors face, that we all face, really. We can turn the most wonderful things, even gospel ministry, into opportunities for sins of self and self-glory. We can turn it into an opportunity for pride. And especially in pastors and in, and in teachers, hypocrisy has a way of having a trickle-down effect that can poison an entire people. And so we're not surprised when Jesus typically levels his harshest criticisms against the leaders of the day. Those who had influence upon others, other people. Those who, those who were themselves hypocrites and teaching others to be hypocrites. Jesus often gives his harshest criticisms to leaders in what was the church of the day and I think to the church today. You need to know that this isn't only about the teachers. 
There is a subtle distinction as we read in the New Testament about the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes. The lawyers and scribes are, are really sort of the same uh, group, and, and sometimes those terms are, are interchanged. You saw that in the beginning they were called lawyers. At the end it says the scribes and the Pharisees. That's, that's the same sort of group. But there was, there was an overlay between the Pharisees and the lawyers, scribes, but they weren't exactly the same group. There's a slight distinction. You see, the Pharisees of the day were a, a religious sect. They were, they were a group of people, kind of like a denomination today, a bunch of people who had the same sorts of religious convictions. Many of them were, were teachers, leaders, uh, but not all of them were. Many of them, and many, uh, probably more than, more than the teachers, many were simple laymen. They were uh, private citizens. Remember Saul of Tarsus in a former life. He was a Pharisee, but... His job was as a tent maker. He didn't become a, a professional preacher until the Lord called him to be an apostle. But then you had the lawyers, and these were the professionals. These were the leaders in Israel. It was their job to instruct the people in the laws of God, to interpret the word for the masses. And many of them were Pharisees, but many of them were not. And so you see, I think, by that, that, that when Jesus exposes the hazards of empty religion, he doesn't let the amateurs off the hook, folks. In fact, that's where he begins. He begins with the layman, with the group of the Pharisees. And that's because religious pretense is no respecter of persons. Hypocrisy is a sin that can show up in the pew just as easily as it shows up in the pulpit. And it can show up in the pulpit pretty easily, let me tell you. But nobody in this room, if you claim to be a Christian, is exempt from the lure, from the temptation to become a hypocrite or to live for a time in hypocrisy. It's something that plagues us all. And so, just as Jesus will tell his disciples at the beginning of the next chapter, so I think he tells us all today to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Watch out for religion in your own life that masquerades as the real thing. but actually is just empty religion. Watch out for the way that hypocrisy hides the danger of living without the gospel. That's our main idea today, the fact that hypocrisy often hides the danger of living without the gospel. And as we open this passage, there are three dangers of hypocrisy I'd like to point out to you. The first danger of hypocrisy is the danger of a false appearance. That is the way that hypocrisy focuses on external appearance while neglecting inner cleansing. This is the characteristic sin of the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said, verse 39. The Lord said to them, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and of wickedness. Here are people who spent all of their time, all of their effort, trying to maintain the facade of being nice, upstanding, moral citizens in Israel. That was what they dumped all of their time and all of their energy into, and they ignored obedience to the Lord from the heart. And you need to know there were several religious practices that all Pharisees held with excruciating regularity. One of the religious practices of the Pharisees was fasting for two whole days a week. Every week, two whole days. That was one of the, distinction, uh, one of the distinguishing marks of the Pharisees. Another was that they fastidiously tithe a full tenth of every one of their possessions and all of their produce. And we'll see that in just a moment. And the other religious practice that they had was this ritual hand washing. 
that they washed their hands before eating absolutely any food that came into their mouth. Now, the, the washing was not as we might wash our hands today. They had no theory of germs and bacteria. They weren't worried about catching some communicable disease like the flu. This is a ceremonial thing. This is a ritual to, to cleanse off, to ritually cleanse off all of the sin and the contamination that they would encounter out there in the world. And so especially when they would come in from the marketplace, from somewhere that they were engaged with the masses, they made a big show about rinsing each hand separately, one by one, to ritually cleanse off the contamination, the filth of being with other sinners out there in the world. And they had all sorts of regulations for what it was supposed to look like and how much water you had to use and how it was to be poured and how far beyond the wrist you had to rinse and make sure that it we went all the way to the fingertips to count your hands as clean and what things you could dry your hands on and still count them clean and all sorts of observances. But Jesus is showing that despite their rituals, they are paying attention to dirt in all the wrong places. He says you're like people who, who only ever wash the outside of a glass. He's telling them that their souls inwardly, their, their greedy hearts or like the kind of thing that you find when you come home after a two-week vacation and only then remember that you forgot to clean out the refrigerator before you left. And there are all sorts of terrible things growing back there in the corners. And as long as you keep the door closed, the stink stays inside and nobody's the wiser, actually. It's only once you open the door that you realize, whoa, what is in there? Jesus is saying, your hearts are like that. You put all of your time and all of your energy in ritually getting rid of all the things you encounter out there, but you're forgetting the filth that lies inside your sinful hearts. They're dealing with dirt in all the wrong places, but that's the way that hypocrisy works. It overlooks the filth that's inside. It focuses on looking moral and looking religious to other people. And maybe you've found out already that that's actually pretty easy. So long as you hang out with the right crowd, so long as you learn the right jargon, so long as you say the right things and, and go through the right motions, most people would never know the hypocrisy you're hiding. It's this secret thing. It remains insulated, but the Lord knows. You fools, he said. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? See, the people we interact with every day can only see skin deep. They can only judge us by our actions. They can't see our heart, but the Lord knows our heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can answer it? The answer is supposed to be no one, but the next verse tells us, I, the Lord, examine the heart. I test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Your creator sees beneath the skin. He sees the hidden desires. The secret lusts. Your creator knows that sinful laziness that hides behind that mask of productiveness anytime anybody walks past your cubicle. Here I am at work. No Facebook there. Nothing to see. Don't worry about me. I'm hard at work. And somebody's gone and here we go back to... But the Lord knows. He sees what nobody else does. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
The Lord sees the inner man, while hypocrisy only looks at outward performance. The same dynamic was at play, actually, in the way that they dealt with the tithe. Verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. Now, actually, in the, the laws, the, the regulations that we have from the Jewish leaders from the second century, which pretty well reflect what would have been around in the first century when Jesus was teaching. From their regulations in the second century, they explicitly said that mint was exempt from the tithe. Nobody mentioned rue. It's not the sort of thing that you even paid attention to. It just sort of grew by itself. It was almost like a weed that was about the size of a shrub, and it was an aromatic that you could use for all sorts of things, but they didn't even talk about it. Nobody paid attention to rue. It certainly wasn't the thing that you would go around fastidiously snipping and tithing and bundling together to give into the temple. And Jesus is saying, what a mockery you're making of this whole system by trying so hard to go above and beyond the call of duty just so others will know that you are really serious about God's law and what he calls you to do. It's a farce. Imagine if Jesus condemned us for tithing our daisies and our dandelions and one-tenth of every weed that grows in your backyard. This is kind of what he's saying. You go above and beyond, you do all that you can, but you miss the most important things. Is that what the Lord wants from us? Does he want the minute tenth of every last little dime that we collect and we make sure that it comes out of the gross and not the net and, we, and that's all good. I think Christians ought to be giving at least 10% as New Testament believers. But is that what the Lord really wants? Is that the sort of internal heart religion that God is after? Is it just the fastidious tenth of all that we have? As the Lord already said in Micah chapter 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? What shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? But they will not walk humbly with their God. They've not given themselves to love of God from the heart because actually that's a lot harder than hypocrisy. They're not actually caring for their brothers and sisters and their neighbors around them. They're not giving justice to the widow and the sojourner and the fatherless like the Lord has called them to do. They simply bundle up all of their weeds and they take them to the temple and they pat themselves on the back and say, I'm a good little boy. I've done what God has required. And they neglect those who are in need on the way back home. It's hypocrisy. They also love the best seats in the synagogues. Here's folks where you can see uh, that these people were not Presbyterians, by the way. Uh, he says, verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. And the reason that they were not uh, Presbyterians is that for them, the best seats in the synagogue were at the front. <laughs> Typically, like all the way up, right around the front. Now, the next time you tour Old North Church in Boston, make sure you pay attention to the Bay Pew. It's all the way up at the front. It's the one pew that, that sort of sits so that it almost faces the congregation as, it's, as it faces that large pulpit raised up in the air. It's the one that's lined in red velvet and has a plaque on the outside. 
this pew reserved for the men of the Honduras Bay, 1773. Who were the men of the Honduras Bay? Well, they were sailors from Boston uh, who traveled to Honduras, and they worked in the log, logwood plantations. Logwood was a tree that grew, and it was sent back to be used as a dye for fabrics and all sorts of things. And it could fetch a great price if you went and you got it. And they went and they got so much logwood, and they sent it back as this great fortune so that they could bankroll the steeple that's on top of Old North Church. And what did they get? They got the best seat in the church, lined with red velvet. So everybody in the church could sit there and look at them and be humbled by their generosity. Jesus says this is what the Pharisees want. They want to be noticed. They want others to be humbled in their presence. They want to say, wow, if only I could be just like those Pharisees. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be known. They wanted everyone to associate them with their own mental picture of the model Jewish citizen. Now, we don't have a Bay Pew. It's probably good that we have chairs that have to go up and get put back down each week, or maybe somebody would try to set up their own right up here, maybe. That would be awkward. But, but it's still easy. It's still very easy for us to fall into the same hypocritical trap. It's easy for us to focus our religious life on the things that others see. We know what it is to work for that immediate payback that we get the way people think well of us. And we have our own... Uh, our own attainments, the goals that we have. Maybe I'll arrive when I'm the family who shows up with the well-behaved children in church. Wouldn't it be nice if all of my children profess faith before they go off to college, and what will people think of me if they don't? Wouldn't it be nice to be the person in the Bible study who can answer all the hard questions and everybody else is there scratching their head and they don't get it, and I can say, ha-ha, the Westminster Larger Catechism says... Wouldn't it be nice to be the person with the deep pockets because you've stewarded your funds so well over the years and maybe someday when the Lord provides a building, you can be the one to give that donation and nobody ever says anything, but always uh, we suspect, oh, we know who it was, don't we? And they give that sort of wink and a nod and think, oh, they made this all possible. Wouldn't it be nice to be noticed by other people? It's so easy to fall into those things. Giving gifts to the church and raising obedient children, none of those things are, are bad or wrong or sinful in themselves, but we know the way that we can pursue all of those things for the glory of the self. There is that sinful impulse in us that works for the validation of other people's opinions. And really, it's not that hard. It's not that hard to be the person who can give the best answers in Sunday school. You don't even need the Holy Spirit for that. You just need a few theology textbooks. You need to study like crazy. You need to be the person with the biggest brain in the room, and everybody will think that you're really on top of your life if your theology is in order, won't they? But it's easier than the other way around. It's not that hard to be the disciplinarian at home. So you can crack the whip so that when you show up on Sunday, your children put on their nice, smiling Christian faces, and they sit there obediently, and they look like they're paying attention, and everybody says, well, I bet that house is really put together, and I wish I was raised there, or I wish I was raising my children like that. And on and on they go, but that's actually easier than obedience to the Lord from the heart. See, that's why we slip into hypocrisy, isn't it? We do it because it's attainable. It's something we can do by our own strength. We can work for external obedience. We can get other people to be impressed with all the good that we can do, and yet be vacuous inside. 
Outward obedience is easier than faith from the heart, but God requires faith from the heart. Verse 41. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is calling us not just to surrender our appearance, but to surrender ourselves. To do work with the Lord in the secret places, to to engage in private confession, private prayer, where nobody will ever see your gifts, nobody will ever hear the words that you say, where only the Lord who sees in secret will know your relationship with him. He calls us to private confession. That's the only way to be cleansed, by the way. To give as alms those things that are within. To give the Lord our heart that he demands from us. To turn over our lives and say, here, O Lord, is my heart. I offer it sincerely and promptly, as Calvin said. You can have my obedience. You can have my life. You can have my finances. But here's the primary thing. Here's my heart that I want to follow you even if nobody else ever knows it. And that's the only way to be cleansed. John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say if you give a bigger gift than anybody else in the church, you will be cleansed from your unrighteousness. He doesn't say if you know the answer to every question in Sunday school, you'll be cleansed from your unrighteousness. He says if we confess if we give as alms the things that are within. So, dear friends, beware the hypocrisy that tells you that what other people don't know won't hurt you. Beware the hypocrisy that thinks that you can have this false appearance, you can lead people on, and they won't be any wiser, and you won't be any worse off. Beware the hypocrisy that focuses on external appearance and neglects internal cleansing. That's the first hidden danger of hypocrisy. Now the second is like it, and it's the danger of a false allegiance. We've seen the danger of a false appearance, and now the danger of a false allegiance, and this is all about the way that hypocrisy claims to love God's word, and yet it will not listen to God's message. This is the sin of the lawyers. Just like the Pharisees, they also knew how to put on a good show to make others think that they really cared about the Lord and about his precepts. And for the lawyers, it was all about how they handled God's word. Verse 46, Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers also. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, they did have a role, these lawyers in Israel. They were the teachers. They were the official interpreters for the people, a sort of quasi-priestly role. They couldn't go and offer sacrifices at the temple, but, but there was this, this change in Israel after the Babylonian exile. In fact, most of the lawyers and the scribes of this day would have traced their lineage, their, their spiritual authority back to heroes of the faith, like, like Nehemiah the scribe. Nehemiah, who was called not just to go and help rebuild Israel physically, but he, he rebuilt them spiritually by standing with them all day from morning until midday. And you think my sermons are long. From morning until midday, and they read the law, and it says he and 18 other fair, uh, uh, Levites, he and 18 other Levites stood and they gave a sense of the reading so that everybody could understand it. A wonderful impulse, a gracious thing that the Lord would raise up people to explain the word so his people can hear it. And that's what they thought they were doing. But they saw themselves as men who had to make clear what God's word had left open-ended. 
Generally, this happened by taking God's law and heaping all sorts of contingencies upon it to cover every possible uh, aspect of your life, no matter what it was. By the Jews' reckoning, there are 613 direct commands, thou shalt, thou shalt not, in the Old Testament. And to the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers, uh, they ballooned that number to somewhere around 6,000. Here are the extras that you need to know if you really want to be serious about keeping the law. Here are the extra burdens that we're going to heap on top of it. Now, the most famous of, of all their expansions are uh, the, the regulations regarding what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. The law was pretty simple, actually. Uh, it said, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. There are other Sabbath principles in the Old Testament, but this one and, and the other ones still leave a lot uh, to be answered. What does the Lord mean when he says you can't do any work? Where do we draw the line? What are the things that you can do and can't do, and what counts as work, what counts as recreation, and all these sorts of questions. And so here come the lawyers to rescue the people. And among other things, one of the ways that they defined work was in what you could carry and what you could not carry. They said it was work on the Sabbath day if you carried anything equal to or greater than the weight of a single dried fig. And then they went further. They said not only is it about how much it weighs, but how you carry it. And they said, if one carries something with his right or his left hand, in his lap or on his shoulder, he has transgressed the Sabbath. And then, if he carries on the back of his hand, or with his foot, or in his mouth, or with his elbow, in his ear, in his hair, in his belt, with its opening downward, between his belt and his shirt, in the hem of his shirt, in his shoes or his sandals, he has not transgressed. And so what do you notice there? They define the laws, and they also define the loopholes. So that if you know the law well enough, you can do pretty much anything you want on the Sabbath day. If you can figure out how to carry your burdens between your shirt and your belt, you're fine. And you see what happens. These regulations become burdens for others, but not for themselves. They heap all these burdens on others, but they know how to get around the regulations that they've put in place. And they're sitting there saying, look how well we care for God's word. We've given you all these regulations to keep you from even beginning to transgress it, but not for us. And it's hypocrisy, isn't it? It's a way to ignore the intent of God's law by drowning it in man-made regulations. And you could use those regulations to condemn those who don't follow you or you'd excuse yourself if you knew the rule book. We do the same thing, don't we? <laughs> Actually. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you grew up in one of those churches that like to take Christian preferences and make them Christian law. Maybe you grew up, as I did, maybe many of you grew up in one of those churches where they played the game that went something like, real Christians don't fill in the blank. Real Christians don't dance. Real Christians never drink alcohol. Real Christians uh, don't listen to music with a syncopated beat. Real Christians don't go to the movie theater. And that's all low-hanging fruit, but folks, we've got our own shibboleths. Real Christians homeschool their children. Real Christians always vote Republican. Real Christians never watch television on the Lord's Day. There's nothing wrong 
with any of those preferences. They may be a wonderful example of applying God's word in your situation, but what happens when we take our Christian preferences and we make them the law of the Medes and the Persians, which shall not be broken forever and amen, world without end? Well, then we stand there saying, we care an awful lot about God's word, but we care about it so much that we're the only ones that know how to interpret it. We put our little fences around it, just like the lawyers did, and we say, unless you're playing our game according to our rules, you can go somewhere else, thank you. It becomes a way, maybe, to, to manipulate, well, I, I messed around in that direction that one time, but it, I knew, and it was for this reason. But anybody else gets a, a complete writing off because they have transgressed our preferences and our boundaries. We do the same thing that they did, and it's hypocrisy. But then comes the hypocrisy of verse 47. And Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now I hope you noticed in our New Testament reading today uh, that Peter was able to say that David's tomb was with them to that day. They knew where it was. Here's an example of what Jesus is talking about. You can imagine the way it happened, that the Jews would go out and they would set up pillars, they would set up memorial stones, reminders for all the people of the faithful men of the past that the Lord had given to them, those prophets who stood like steel in the face of the sin of the people. I suppose if all they were doing were just building Ebenezer's, that would have been fine. It was a way of building up monuments and saying, thank you, Lord, for the men that you sent. But Jesus actually says there's something far more sinister going on here when they're building up the tombs of the prophets. Actually, what they were doing was not so much making a statement of thanksgiving to the Lord, but they were making a statement about themselves and about their obedience. Here's the way Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. That's what the monuments were about. It was about saying, oh, no, 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 we're not like those people. It wasn't just thank you, Lord, but it was thank you that I'm not like those other people. Oh, if only the Lord had sent his prophets in our day. Oh, if only the Lord had spoken wisdom in our ears. Then how much bloodshed, how much suffering, how much sin could have been averted because we would not have fallen into the temptations that our forefathers fell into. And that would be a beautiful sentiment if it were not a total lie. The fact that they built up the tombs of the prophets didn't prove that they were better than their fathers. Actually, it showed that they were just like them. And here's the proof. How do they treat the prophets that God was sending them right now? Verse 49, Jesus says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now, when you read that verse, maybe your first impulse, like mine, is to try and look at the bottom to see where the footnotes are and see what book Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, but he's not. And he's not quoting the Apocrypha or some extra-canonical book either. He's not doing that. Jesus is prophesying. This is new revelation. It's a summary of a lot of the old revelation, but this is new. 
And Jesus is giving them a litmus test. You want to know how you're just like your fathers. How did you treat John the Baptist? How will you reject my apostles? What are you going to do with me? Isn't it ironic that the end of our passage ends there? What did they do? Well, they pressed him. They provoked him. They were lying in wait, hoping to catch him in something he might say. Why? So they could put him to death, just like their fathers put to death all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. So they could do exactly the same thing that their forefathers did and pat themselves on the back and say, oh, no, 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 we wouldn't have done that. We listen to God's word. We're sensitive to God's word. We love God's word. But when Christ convicts us of sin and hypocrisy, we'll stop at nothing to silence him. They claimed to love the word of God, but they would not receive the word that God was speaking in their ears. This is how Jesus said it in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you will not turn to me so that you may have life. How well can you love the scriptures if you don't love the one the scriptures are pointing to, he's saying. You don't love prophets. You only love dead prophets because everyone the Lord sends to you, you kill. You want nothing to do with God's word, even though you stand and say, oh, no, no, we are the protectors of God's word. That's why Jesus pronounces that terrifying judgment in this passage, that the blood of all the prophets from A to Z is going to be required at their hands and upon their heads. It seems maybe a little unfair, but it's not. Because you see, all of the prophets from A to Z have been pointing forward to Christ. That has been their message. There is one who is coming. You can see it in Abel's sacrifice. There is one who is coming that will really deal with our problem with, this, with a sacrifice of blood. Not the tithes of the herbs, not the things from the field, blood sacrifice. There's one who's coming. It began all the way back with Abel, and it went all the way to Zechariah and 2 Chronicles, standing between the altar and the temple and telling the people that they were wicked and the Lord was going to send one to deal with their wickedness once and for all. And right there in the midst of the temple, they stoned him to death because he spoke about their sin. You see, Jesus is saying, you don't care for God's word if you don't care for the one that they are pointing to. And when Christ finally shows up, what do they say? how much they love God's prophets. They said, away with this man. They said, we have nothing to do with this imposter king. They said, crucify him. They said, may his blood be upon our heads and upon the heads of our children. And Jesus says, it will be. What a terrible hypocrisy. What a terrible, dangerous sin. It's the duplicity that says we love God's word and yet we will not hear God's message. And that is where all hypocrisy eventually leads. The core of Christian hypocrisy is the impulse to maintain that appearance that we are good and moral and we are right with God and we don't need somebody to intervene on our behalf. All Christian hypocrisy denies the reason that Christ came into the world. It denies that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so hypocrisy carried to its natural conclusion refuses to repent because it refuses to acknowledge that repentance is necessary. 
Dear friends, beware the dangerous sin of a false allegiance. Beware the hypocrisy that claims to love God's word while it will not hear God's message. God's message is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not to save the righteous, not to save the squeaky clean, not to save those who are doing pretty well all by themselves, thank you very much. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And unless you embrace that message, unless you embrace that gospel, you do not love the word of God. I don't care how many Bible studies you've been to, how many books you've read. If you don't love the Christ that God's word proclaims, you don't love God's word. And that's what he was telling them. So friends, beware the hypocrisy that tries to have the Bible and its morals without faith and repentance. That tries to be Christian without Christ. Beware the hypocrisy that claims to love God's word without God's message. Now, you probably notice if you're paying attention, there are two more woes that we haven't dealt with yet. There's one for the Pharisees and there's one for the lawyers. And even though the Pharisees and the lawyers may show up in different forms of hypocrisy, it really is the same message to both of them. It is this final danger of the way that empty religion actually has an effect on the people around us. And so our third, our third point, the third danger, is the danger of a false assistance. It's the way that hypocrisy ruins those who receive our ministry. I suppose if there's a subtle temptation to the sin of hypocrisy, it's the way that we can convince ourselves that it is a victimless crime. After all, the whole essence of hypocrisy is that it's hidden, that nobody knows it's there. And so it's not like thievery, it's not like murder, it's not like something we do that harms somebody else. If we're hypocrites, we will bear it, and maybe that's okay. And we don't have to worry about involving anybody else. So we, we reason with ourselves. Maybe the hidden nature of, of hypocrisy keeps it off the radar, and the people that we contact will somehow be immune to our spiritual disease, but that's not true at all. Verse 44, woe to you. You are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, in another place, Jesus said that these Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. That's a different idea. It's similar, uh, but then it was the idea of this beautiful tomb that that really deceived the one who looked at it. It looked wonderful from the outside, even though inside it was full of bones and death and uncleanness. Here Jesus is saying, this is the grave that nobody knows is even there. It's the one that's dug out there in the field somewhere, and it's, it's been there for so long that nobody even remembers it, and you just walk all over, and that's a big deal. Not a big deal for us. We live across the street from a cemetery. We learned pretty quickly that in our neighborhood, so long as nobody's visiting one of the graves, it's just another place for kids to ride their bikes. But for a Jew, a graveyard, a cemetery was a terrible thing. God had told them, Numbers chapter 19, whoever in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword or who died naturally or who touches a human bone or a grave, they shall be unclean seven days. You see, grave uncleanness was real uncleanness. It wasn't this scribal make-believe, their extra regulations. This was something God had warned them about. This was defilement you could spread among the members of your family. This was an uncleanness that would keep you from the temple for a whole week. You couldn't go and worship the Lord. And maybe you catch the irony of what Jesus is saying. The whole passage began because the Pharisees poured the water over their hands and they said, we're clean from the defilement of the outside world. And Jesus says, oh, no, you're not. Actually, all those who come close enough to you to come into contact with you are defiled because of you. There's a sludge of hypocrisy moving from the Pharisees outward rather than from the outside in. 
It's not what comes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the heart. And Jesus says, your heart is all full of all kinds of uncleanness and defilement. You're like unmarked graves, and then people are impressed with the Pharisaic life, and they come near, and they want to learn how to become a Pharisee. They want to be as impressive as these people, and all they learn when becoming a Pharisee is how to clean the outside of the cup. And that's it. And the inside is untouched. The same was true of the lawyers. They had influence in Israel. They had clout. The people took what they said seriously. And what was the example that they set? They stood and said, oh, we love God's law, but not for us. Maybe for somebody else. We love God's prophets, but not when they speak to us. Maybe to somebody else. So Jesus says, woe to you, lawyers. You've taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves. When he says that, he means the kingdom of God. You didn't enter the kingdom of God yourselves. In fact, you hindered those who were entering. And their hypocrisy was having a damning effect on themselves and everybody around them. See, hypocrisy is is not a safe, victimless sin. It always affects the people who are around us. Sometimes our hypocrisy destroys other people when we are caught in some terrible, heinous sin. And our whole life goes up in smoke and everybody around us is scandalized. And they see the truth of who we really are inside. And the people who trusted us, the people who followed us are suddenly disillusioned. And they think, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes it happens like that. Far more often it seeps. It moves slowly from person to person, by example to example. Others learn from us what it is to be concerned with externals and to give lip service to the scripture without really submitting to Christ. And so hypocrisy spreads through multiplication from one person to another. And here's the rub. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a teacher to have that kind of influence on other people. Kent Hughes said this. He said, we all leave our fingerprint on the people around us, either for Christ or against him. Friends, if you profess to be a Christian, there is somebody who is watching your faith to see if it's the real thing. They may be watching so that they have an excuse to write you off. They may be watching so that they can actually learn from you, but somebody is watching your life and what you do and what you say to see if it aligns with what you profess about the Savior you claim. If you are a parent, you have children who are learning by your example what it means to be a Christian. If you're a student, you have friends at school, perhaps, who may not know any other Christian but you, and they're watching to see what following Jesus is all about. If you have adult siblings, they're watching you to see what faith looks like when life gets hard, to see what difference it even makes to believe in the Lord who saved you. Somebody is watching you. And so our faith could be the greatest witness or our hypocrisy could ruin those who receive our ministry. What are we to do? Are we to throw up our hands and feel the pressure of thinking that maybe the future of Christianity rests on our example? It doesn't. Or should we take this passage for what Christ intended it to be, a call to be genuine Christians? Not holier-than-thou Christians. Not not stuck-up, well-quarantined, full of rules that make us special Christians. Just genuine, plain old Christians. 
I'll end with J.C. Ryle. He said, whatever we are as Christians, let us be sincere. We may be weak and erring and frail. We may come far short of our aims and our desires, but at any rate, if we profess to believe in Christ, let us be true. That's what we ought to be. Honest Christians. Honest with our sin. Honest with our failure. Honest with our need for Christ. It's the only way that our faith is going to make any dent at all for Christ in the world. It's the only way to escape the danger of living without the gospel, to come first to Christ and say, Oh Lord, I need you. That's who I am. I'm a sinner in need of grace, and you're the one who promises it in Christ. Not to cover it over and say, Look how good I am, and look how well I have my life ordered, and look how put together everything is. What a hypocrisy. What a sham. What a danger to everybody around us. Christ is calling us to be true Christians, to admit how much we need him. Won't you pray together with me? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would sink it deep into our hearts so that it may show up in our lives. Thank you for Christ, our Savior, who gave himself to save us from our sin and our defilement. Oh, Lord, forgive us, we pray, for the filth of iniquity within. Cause us to cry out to you in faith and repentance and build us up in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.